welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 5. Mapping out the terrain of the unconscious. There is the question of what sets a drive against a drive. So there are um, some drives that naturally sort of conflict, like um, if you've got pain avoidance as, as a, a drive, um, there might, that might prevent you from uh, you know, gathering certain forms of food that would uh, cost you painfully. Okay, you, you may not decide that tigers are the kind of food that you want to eat, right, for instance. You know? um, but more commonly, what sets drive against drive are the grown-ups around us who, who pit those drives against each other. And that's often how we are socialised. They say, you know, if you keep doing that, you won't get this. And so they, they, make, they make it cost you to do things they don't want you to do. So it starts off as an interpersonal relationship, but because we identify with those that we love and upon whom we depend, we quite quickly interject or take on as part of our own psychology and set of beliefs the, the moral standards of others. And we come to believe that it's not just, I believe this because mum told me I wouldn't get fed if I didn't believe this, to that is just a wrong thing to do. In other words, you, you believe that you can perceive right and wrong as part of the external world, where in fact what you perceive as an object that someone has socialised you to believe is a right or wrong thing to desire. And so the superego or moral standards are relative, they are acquired culturally and experientially, usually through your particular family. And so a desire can come to cause pain instead of pleasure because it just causes too much moral conflict. And so I really, you know, am with Adam Phillips when he says, we suffer not from our desires, but from the attitudes that we take towards our desires. And of course, you know, attitudes are slightly more modifiable than desires. So there's hope. Um, now, attitudes are not the same thing, in my view, as beliefs. Because if I, I just believe that, you know, a textbook has got a fact right, okay, that's a belief. Um, I prefer that textbook because I believe it has got the facts right. But if I have an attitude about the rightness of a textbook, it's because I believe that textbooks ought to get things right. In other words, that's a kind of moral stance that I have, not just about that I happen to prefer this particular textbook, but something I believe about all textbooks, that they should tell the facts and not fiction. Okay, so attitudes usually have a bit of moral weight to them. And if you think about attitudes, they're always not just about what you should do, it's usually about what you think everyone else should do as well. And that's a moral claim. Okay, there's two sort of forms of repression that Freud talks about. He talks about primary repression, which he sometimes refers to as primal repression. And... Um, that's a really weird notion that I struggle to flesh out. I might as well just be honest. He says, it's an unconscious idea, which, and I'll just quote him directly, which as yet has received no cathexis from the preconscious and therefore cannot have that cathexis withdrawn from it. Okay, what he means by cathexis is an investment of energy or an investment of interest in something. So in other words, if I've got an unconscious idea, say that food would be nice, right? 
and my um, preconscious goes, um, oh, what's this rising sensation of hunger here, you know, and invests some energy and interest in it. And I am, then get sufficient awareness of this bodily impulse to go, ah, oh, words, I'm hungry, okay. In other words, I attach words to this bodily impulse and that enables it to become conscious and known, right? Now, what Freud is saying is that with ordinary repression, secondary repression, something has become conscious and known and then I've pushed it back out of awareness. But he's saying with primal repression, there is this idea that's within us that we have never consciously known. And it just sits there and draws other material to it. So it's kind of like this magnet, if you like, that draws other material to it. It's a weird aspect of this theory. I'm not sure how much it's needed, but I'm sure there's heaps of literature on it. I've just never looked, okay? So if I'm sounding a bit vague, it's because I am, because I don't really quite know what he means by primal repression. It's like the Mona Lisa's smile. You know, why is she smiling? Primal repression, what could it mean? Do tell me if you've got any ideas. I'm very interested. Okay, but secondary repression is defensive dynamic activity. We know that it targets powerful wishes and desires. And the reason it targets those wishes and desires is because we believe that if we act on those wishes or desires, we will be punished, we'll experience moral guilt, we'll feel psychic pain. So no way do we even want to think about those wishes and desires. So we deny those uh, mental contents access to conscious thought. And that, when, when he's talking about repression, most times he's talking about secondary repression. After pressure, he refers it to it as. Um, now, what repression is, is an, it's an attempt to run away from something, but you can't run away from it because it's in you. It's part of you. You can't run away from hunger. You can't run away from sexual desire. I remember having, um, I had pneumonia and didn't know that I had pneumonia. And I've been walking around feeling quite terrible for a long time and exhausting myself with coughing. And I remember having the thought, oh gosh, I'd just like to walk away from this body. I was so sick of coughing, you know. And it was only when I did a yoga headstand, I thought, my lungs aren't working. <laughs> That's why I'm, something's really wrong here. And I went to the doctor and they go, yep, you got pneumonia. You know, it's like, oh, great. That's why I was feeling so bad. So I'm really in touch with my body, as you can tell, right? Okay, so but it's an attempt to take flight from something that was inside your own body. It's a it's an attempt to turn something away to keep it from a dis, at a distance from conscious awareness. And as I've shown you, sometimes it's portrayed as processes that are affecting our ideas on the borders between two systems. So what's fundamental to repression is conflict. It's not just something that occurs because the impulse is too strong. It's because that impulse would cause pleasure in one part and unpleasure in another. And it's not just about selective forgetting repression. It's crucially about why one forgets. Dynamic refers to what is the little engine that is making you forget. That's what it means by dynamic, that is pushing it out of awareness. That's what dynamically repressed means. But it also means dynamic in the sense that it's, it's mobile, fleeting, and changeable. For instance, if someone really primes me to think about my past morally, I might go, oh, God, I was a schmuck when I was 19, okay? 
and I will really feel bad, you know. Whereas if someone else goes, ah, oh, everybody's a bit wild when they travel, aren't they? And I'll go, yeah, I had a great time when I was 19 and I'm not going to be nearly so repressive in the way that I recollect my past. So dynamic also means fleeting, changeable and variable. And that makes it really difficult to study because a person's level of repression is not a constant thing. Even though you get people who are more repressed than others, you yourself will be more repressed on some days than others and in some circumstances than others. But repression is not also about just not wanting to remember. It's not just about the ideational content of that knowing relation. It's also about not wanting to do things and not wanting to have hot affective desires about things. So it's not just about the cognition. It's about wanting to really restrain impulses and mental contents that are quite affectively charged and hot. So the aim of repression is to prevent the drives from knowing the target and certainly to prevent you from acting upon it. And that's pivotal. So what's repressed are actions, thoughts and impulses, but what's entailed in repression is usually also a little bit of suppression, because you remember that diagram, you can repress the thought, but the charge of affect has got to be dealt with with suppression, okay? You've got to sort of prevent it from revealing itself. And Freud says, if a man's if a man is guilty and his lips are silent, guilt will shatter through his fingertips. Okay, and a lot of the sort of lie detection research hones in on that. It, it looks at your gestures, at your pace of movement. You can you can control your face quite well when you're lying. In fact, that's one of the markers of lying. Apparently, if you keep your face too straight, it's <laughs> covering something. Everything leaves a signifier. But also, um, people track the gestures because you're not bringing those under your con your mental control to quite such an extent. So when Freud talks about wishes, wunsch, it's one of those moments where language sort of does matter because he thinks wishes are different from just beliefs. It's, it's much more charged than just a belief. It's closer to an action. Okay, this should feel okay to you now, even though it's a bit of a mouthful because of the first half of the lecture. That is that the ideational representative is the primary target of repression. But the affect that goes alongside that idea, you know, because you have you hold an idea with more or less affective charge, that affect has to go elsewhere. And often it can go into symptoms like bodily symptoms or rituals or substitute patterns of action. And sometimes they go into substitutive satisfactions of the instinct. So the Fred Nile example, he's moralizing about porn sites and he is managing in his, the course of his job to visit many more porn sites than most of us ever would in our lives. Same with film censors. The, the guarding against their perverse impulses to know about polymorphous sexuality puts them in a job where they get to deal with a heap of polymorphously perverse sexuality. In other words, the substitute satisfaction of the instincts, even under moral disguise. So that's what's kind of interesting. So when you see this kind of crazy little phrase, your symptoms are your sex life, that's what they're meaning. Like if you're so repressed that you think, you know, sex is a sin and all sorts of conditions and you try to legislate against anybody having access to sexual film, films, then part of your symptomatology is that you are on the board that, uh, you know, rates the films. Is repression a one-off? I wish. 
you know, I wish he just did it once and it was gone. It's a continual series of defensive operations, which is why people who are slightly neurotic are exhausted because they're so busy not thinking about things and not doing things, and that takes energy. Because you think, if the drives have got heaps of energy, anything that's going to oppose them, like an affect or another drive, it's got to have some clout itself. And, you know, that anti-cathexis, you've got the cathexis, the pressing for an investment of interest or energy in the environment, and somebody's going, no, you're not allowed to be interested in that category of things or people, right? You've got a clash. Okay, it's like an isometric exercise. Energy is expended. You're going nowhere, but you're exhausted in the process. You're depleted. Okay, and that's that's why repression is not a good thing. That's why it's good not to be repressed if you can and lift repression where possible. It's a perpetual frustration because the repressed wants to gain ca access to conscious awareness. It wants to gain access to the motor system. It wants you to take you up to those objects that it desires. And you're going, no, no, no. But substitute satisfactions, which you can pacify the sex instinct with, don't satisfy as fully as the direct expression of the desire. You know, taking the next best thing is still only the next best thing. And so... Repression is constant because the enemy is within, as it were. In other words, the drives are consistently representing themselves endogenously, in other words, from within your system. And you can't flee your system, even though uh, you may wish to. So there's two senses at least of the word affect and more, as, as, you, as I told you in last week's lecture. You've got the affective charge of the drive. And you've got the separate neuropsychological patterns that I talked about last week, like shame, disgust. And the difficulty with affects is they get awakened. You know, like when you see Lord of the Rings and the dragon's eye opens, you know, that's kind of like your drives and your affects, you know. A really cute person walks past and it's like, woo, you know, or you, you smell in bakeries and suddenly you're hungry and you weren't before. And I said last week that affects are proto-morality. You're not born with the morality. You're born polymorphously perverse, capable of all sorts of things, eating your own species, mating with your parents, murdering, you know, etc. Um, and what shapes and narrows what we become capable of as we grow up is the, our socialization, and that occurs via morality, but before you've got morality, it occurs with affects like shame and disgust. And without affects and drives clashing against each other, you haven't got repression. And I mentioned last week, just before the lecture ended, um, that there are different forms of anxiety. And in a sense, the, the discrete affects that I talked about are more like drives, but anxiety is a bit different. Anxiety sometimes seems terribly cognitive because it's, it's a, a lot about um, appraisal, you know, appraising what are the consequences going to be for me of this event. Um, but sometimes anxiety can just feel like nervous energy as well and not at all like anything cognitive. It can be quite free-floating. So realistic anxiety, the spider that will kill you. Neurotic anxiety, where you think you're afraid of spiders, but the spider's actually representing something else, and that's, that's a kind of neurotic anxiety. And then moral anxiety, when you do something that isn't actually dangerous to you in any way, like having sex with a stranger is not really going to kill you, but it can cause you enormous anxiety if it conflicts with your moral stance on life. Okay. So 
a developmental story about repression. And this is the developmental story about most things that we become capable of, in a sense. They start off as external transactions with either other people or the external world. Okay? So initially, um, it's the perceived social consequences that contribute to repression of certain desires. Mum's not going to love me if I do that. But later on, mum doesn't have to be there on my own. If I anticipate certain things and appraise them in certain ways and anticipate punishing consequences, I can repress myself. And that's a, a developmental success for society and it can become quite costly to the individual. So what maintains repression is antikathexis. And that's a kind of quite strange notion once you really get into it philosophically. I'm not going to do that today, but if you're intrigued by that, let me know and I can put you in the direction of some interesting pieces of writing, like Freud's very early writing the scientific uh, project in before 1895. But so antikathexis is where you struggle against the emergence of certain ideas and feelings. You don't want them to become fully potentiated as feelings and ideas. You try to nip them in the bud, in a sense, and prevent their formation. Okay, so the role of the body in repression. The crucial thing is that because affect doesn't go away, it's quite often channeled into sensory or motor innovation. So you actually can get sensory experiences or motor experiences that are related to uh, certain repressed impulses and wishes. So, for instance, um, if I'm very anxious during exams and I fear that I'm going to fail, um, my hand may cramp. Okay, it may be a psychological cramping of my hand. It could be that my anxiety is making me hold my pen in a strange way, but it's also quite possible that it is some of my conflicting feelings about my own success that is uh, you know, causing this tension. Okay, that's probably a bit of a dumb example, but that was certainly one that was true for me as a young person sitting exams. I used to get hand cramps. But the hallmark of something that's truly a psychoanalytically inflected bodily symptom is when the person really isn't concerned by it. Um, and some of the most interesting delusions, the person's got no anxiety. So for instance, with Capgras delusion, which is the belief that someone you love very dearly has been replaced by, by a, a robot or by someone else. And what's odd to me about that is that the person's not at all worried that they've got this stranger in their house well, then, the cooking's fine, you know. <laughs> or what's actually happened to your real wife, <laughs> if this is not your wife? Oh, you know, she's probably somewhere or they haven't given it a thought. So there's this belle indifference to something that's quite symptomatic and quite odd that they're not sort of worried about it. So reactive thoughts. When you get reaction formations, it's if you feel shame or disgust or a harsh moral judgment in relation to an activity, you will sometimes absolutely go to the opposite extreme. So if I've got a desire to really be messy and mucky, I might become a cleanliness freak, you know, the white tornado who has everything spotless in their house as a kind of uh, reaction formation against this unconscious impulse, which is intolerable to me. And this is actually what Freud says um, happens very early in our lives, that these... Um, excitation of the erotogenic zones, like stimulation of the anus or of the mouth, 
can result in disgust or shame, which rise like dams, he says, to oppose the activity of the component sexual instincts. So there's a very early transaction going on with our bodily pleasures. And it's quite difficult for us to feel okay about the full array of pleasures that we're capable of because they've been trimmed at a very early stage by affective processes. Okay, so what I've tried to sort of say today is that what motivates these counter pressures, what gets repression up and running, is that you've had some fleeting awareness of the repressed, and these, this fleeting awareness promotes some kind of substitute formations, some sort of compromises between what you want and what you're allowed, or reaction formations, which are not really compromises at all. It's like going too far in the opposite direction. And I just want to give you an example um, from some contemporary evidence of, of John Gabrielli. The reason I got access to John Gabrielli's work was I was invited to be part of a radio program where he was being interviewed and I was being interviewed. And so they gave me this very cool paper of his to read. And then we sort of discussed it on air on the ABC. And I tried to find his article this morning for you, but I couldn't get hold of it. So I'll see if I can find that you know, and put it up online for you. But I'm just going to pick the eyes out of what he discovered. Okay. He was actually really exploring suppression, okay? He was exploring thought suppression, which is where you have consciously initiated prevention of recall. It's the think-no-think -think paradigm that Anderson talks about as well as a contemporary researcher, where you're told not to think about something. Now, that's quite different from repression. So what Gabrielle, sorry, Gabrielli's brain scan evidence shows is that while people were suppressing memories, there were hot spots that occurred in the hippocampus and in the prefrontal cortex. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a brain expert at all. I kind of take things on trust, so I'm just being honest about that. But in my understanding, the hippocampus is involved in successful memory formation that is sufficiently clear and distinct that it can become part of the declarative memory system. In other words, by declarative, I mean you can declare it, you can speak it, you can know it, you can give voice to it. But it's also a feeling that these are my memories. Okay. So if I dissociate and go, oh yes, you know, I treated her very badly, but that was in another land and besides the wench is dead, what I'm saying is, yes, those memories occurred sort of to me, but I'm not really claiming them as my own, okay? So if I were pushing those memories away and not owning them, you would imagine that something would be going on in the hippocampus at such a moment. And also what's interesting from our point of view is that the prefrontal cortex can override or disrupt the retrieval process of memories. Like if you start to remember something and then want to sever that process, the, 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 you would see hot spots in the prefrontal cortex. And so what Gabrielli found was that there was the, the prefrontal cortex was also a bit of a hotspot during suppression. In other words, suppression is recruiting brain regions that are known to be important for executive control functions, like stopping motor responses. They're really interesting. If you think of a drive as something that's impelling you to do something, and all you're doing is suppressing thoughts, but the same part of the brain is active that would be relevant to stopping motor responses that are pushing for some sort of discharge. And as I said online, 
um, it sounds like a paraphrase of one aspect of Freud's account of the ego, that you're trying not to act on impulses and not to be aware of the activation of certain uh, thoughts, I suppose. So Gabrielli's work suggests that there may have been momentary intrusions during the suppression trials, as evidenced by increased dorsolateral prefrontal activation. So it looked like it wasn't a one-off. There were these fleeting awarenesses, and then bits of the brain were activating to disrupt and override that fleeting awareness. So that's kind of consonant, loosely consonant, with the notion of Freud's, that repression is in fact a series of repression, and that these processes require sort of constant activation. <coughs> Except that, of course, Gabrielli was exploring consciously initiated suppression. And that's, that's quite a different thing, but it may or may not be a paradigm for what we're speaking about here. It's just interesting to me that the sort of level of overlap with things that I had been thinking and um, reading about long before I ever read uh, Gabrielle's work. It seemed to fit quite nicely. Look, are repression and suppression really different? It depends. Very early on in Freud's writing, the two are interchangeable. Um, it was a question of things that the person wished to forget and therefore intentionally repressed. That's 1895 when he's writing with Breuer. But then by the interpretation of dreams, he's got a distinction that he puts in place, that repression is unconscious and involuntary, and suppression is conscious and deliberate. By 1915, there's another change, and if you're glazing over, feel free to glaze over. I'm not going to ask you an exam question on this, but I'm just being obsessive in giving you all the details. By 1915, which is the paper you're reading this week, he talks about repression referring to the cognitive component of the impulse and suppression referring to the management of the affect that goes alongside that cognitive component. And uh, the interesting thing, I suppose, is that some feelings can really get out of hand and become quite compulsive and quite incapable of normal inhibition. So you do get people that just get carried away by anxiety or by the fear that they're going to damage somebody or something or themselves. Okay, So suppression is where you're not thinking about something's consciously initiated. And repression is something that's, if you can bear with me, this is a crucial point, it's initiated at a subpersonal level. It's not a little homunculus. It's not you as person deciding. It's a clash of drives or a clash of drives against morality. And you experience the effects of that, but you're not in there with the component processes, able to consciously reflect on each stage of it. It's happening at a subpersonal level. And you know the crucial bits. So what? it's something that would call pleasure in one part, pain in another part. And what you want is this poor old ego is trying to satisfy the drives and satisfy the superego and find enough pleasure to keep you alive, but not so much pleasure that you die in the process of getting it. Okay? And so what the ego is trying to do is to give you the illusion of being a unified, single, moral, cognitive agent. It's trying not to let you know that you're quite an inconsistent person, okay? It's trying not to let you know that you desire things that clash with your idealized view of yourself that's shaped by shame or anxiety or guilt. So the repression is trying to prevent us from being aware of the diversity of our desires. Unconscious 
conscious does it matter you're going to hear probably a bit more about this than you ever wanted to well let me just tell you why this matters to philosophers and it, you know it took a long time for unconscious processes to come into psychology they came into psychology with postman's research in the 1950s 55 years after freud had been writing about them and it's taken a long time for anybody to take seriously the notion of a dynamic unconscious where emotions and drives might be playing a part and as you've seen with killstrom you get people that go oh yes there are unconscious processes but look let's stay away from the freudian conception could we none of those drives and affects let's just have a cognitive unconscious well you can but it's a pre-conscious and it's not really the same thing okay second thing that really matters to philosophers is they say if something is unconscious it's not mental it's just bodily okay but so Sartre says like Descartes Rene Descartes the mental is that which is conscious they saw the mental as synonymous with being conscious and Freud says no you can have mental things like guilt or shame or a longing for someone and it's absolutely there and it's shaping your behavior yeah? and it's shaping your nonverbal signals but you cannot put words to it and render it conscious okay it's still mental it's not just the hippocampus having blood flow changes okay so for Sartre he says for us not to know something we must have chosen not to know it because he's a free will sort of theorist he thinks there's choice and then we would both be deceiver and deceived and he says Freud you're in big trouble philosophically okay and so I'm hoping that there are questions now that you would be able to answer. How could it happen that we both know and don't know? How can we know in order not to know? Doris jumping up and down, favorite short answer questions, love these as exam, exam questions, okay? Love this kind of stuff. And I hope that you would now be in a position to give some answers to these things. Because it seems that a fleeting awareness of the forbidden, forbidden impulse is required to trigger repression, and thus that having to know in order not to know is no longer a paradox if you take the temporal solution rather than the spatial solution. I hope you're still with me when I say all those mouthfuls of words and that you know what that means in terms of the first part of the lecture. Now, if you want to snooze briefly, feel free, because this is way beyond third year level, okay? And I'm, I'm genuinely signaling that, but if you are interested, Stay, stay awake and read Agnes Patitz's chapter, which is online already. Um, but this is really way beyond what you need to know. Okay. So Freud had two notions of unconscious processes, and he never sorted them out in the course of his life. They are mixed up through his writings to the end of his days, unfortunately. One is the systemic notion, whereby the unconscious is a system like a place that has separate attributes, qualities, descriptive terms. And the conscious is a separate place or system that has separate attributes, qualities, or descriptors. That's the systemic view of the unconscious processes. The epistemic view is just that a connection has been severed. In other words, I was in knowing relation to something. Anxiety has come along and disrupted my capacity to know. And I'm no longer in knowing relation. And it's the same if I'm perceiving the world or if I'm perceiving something about my inner world. It's just the same. 
something has disrupted that knowing relation. Epistemic just means knowing. Okay. So a severing of the knowing relation. Okay. So when you read about Freud's theory of the unconscious, and my friends go, no, don't get rid of the system unconscious. That's the bit I really love about Freud. He says, it's a wholly different mode of thought. It's primary process, like fleeting, fast, shifting along chains of associations like mad poetry. Um, it's primary process. You don't test whether this is true or logical. And there's usually no logic because then you're unconscious. You can dream about being afraid of someone that you know to be dead. And you both know that they're dead and are still totally afraid of them. Okay, there's no logic. It's much more mobile in its cathexes. In other words, you can really fancy this person and really fancy that person and suddenly be caught up with something else. It, it's very fluid along the chain of associations, mobile in what you can become interested in aware of. Um, the problem is that the systemic account or the structural account of the unconscious suggests that these things can never become conscious just because of their nature. Well, that would be great. <laughs> There'd be no problem. You would never have to repress because these things could never press for conscious awareness because by their very nature, they can never become conscious. So that's a little bit of a problem. The other problem is that poetry and language and creative thought has primary process, is mobile in its cathexis, we're sometimes not at all logical. In other words, these are not just the hallmarks of unconscious processes. These are also the hallmarks of many conscious processes. So the uniqueness of the attributes doesn't look good. Okay, and that's, this is me just telling you a very short story about this. Now Jung held a systemic view. He said dreams are not defensive in function. They seem zany because that's how the unconscious works. It's zany. And Freud wouldn't agree with that. Okay, so the notion that there are mental processes or systems that are distinguished by possessing particular qualities or operating according to certain laws that are different from each other, the system unconscious doesn't look good. Okay. The epistemically unconscious looks better to me, and the reason I like it more is because it fits with everything I read these days. It really fits with George Bonanno's work. It fits with the paper that I was reading this morning by Schooler about levels of awareness. It just feels better in terms of contemporary research. It doesn't mean it's right, it's just looking more right now. Okay, in 50 years time, the systemic unconscious may look better, but right now, the epistemic unconscious is winning in terms of the weight of evidence. Okay, let me explain the systemic unconscious by stealing from the interpretation of dreams, which is written by Freud in 1900. And I love this wee diagram. It's, it's very, very weird, but I really like it. Okay, so off to the left is sense data, like it might be a poppy that you're perceiving. Okay, Freud would suggest that with any visual display, you take in heaps more than you can actually pay attention to. And that as you sort of process that visual display, as it you know goes up the sort of into the visual cortex, along the what he called mnemic traces, because synapses and things like that weren't known in these days. He called them mnemic traces, but that's what he means. Um, then finally enough processing occurs that you are able 
to become consciously aware of something. And if you then attend to it, and I know lots of people don't really believe in the notion of attention, but he did. He said, if you then attend to it and invest some energy and interest in it, perfect it, that's what he means, it will become a stimulus that you can report on. And you know the research where if you're told to just guess, you do quite well, or just you can recognize things that you can't label and name. Yeah, you know, so it's not all or none about conscious awareness. There's all sorts of sort of nuanced levels in a sense, and I'm not going to go into that. So what Freud is saying is in a sense that every perception, everything starts out as unconscious, and that further processing is required before it can become conscious. And he actually suggests that attention and an investment of interest needs to be uh, there before you can attach the word representation to the thing representation. So he talks about Wortvorstellung, a Vorstellung is a representation, Wort means word, so the Wortvorstellung has to come into contact with the Ding, the thing representation, the thing representation is the Ding Vorstellung. So he suggests that, in some places he suggests that what enables us to become conscious is when the thing representation and the word representation become linked through the process of attention. Okay, and that's what he says, that extra little boost of energy that makes it part of declarative memory so you can talk about it. Okay, so the mere fact that something's not in connection with conscious awareness is enough for it to become epistemically unconscious and you don't need a qualitative distinction between conscious and unconscious thought other than that they're not currently in connection with conscious awareness, and I think that's elegant. And uh, on this view, the relational or epistemic view, repression interferes with the awareness of the mental processes, but it doesn't interfere with the mental content itself. Yes? It, it's, it's becomes a little bit like that in a sense, in that there are things that you prevent from being able to be signified in language because they overwhelm and shock you. It's like, you know, when something traumatizes you, it's like kicking the TV set, you don't get a picture, you know. Things are sort of intolerable. They overwhelm your nervous system, I suppose. And you don't attend to them, invest interest in them, and perfect them enough for them to become processed long-term memories to which you can then attach verbal labels. And that's the beginning of a kind of dissociative process. And dissociative identity is more like that vertical split that I was telling you about before, where you sort of split into sort of sub-selves, and that's more contested in contemporary research and writing. Okay. I want to get onto dreams, and I'm not sure if I'm going to, but if I don't get onto it today, I promise I'll get onto it next week. Okay. Personally, because I, I like to be transparent about my own investments, and that doesn't mean you can't write an essay absolutely champion the systemic unconscious. If you do it well, I promise I will still give you HDs. Um, but I'm just saying this, these are my preferences. I prefer the epistemic unconscious. I think you can reduce most phenomena to that. I think it fits better with the dynamic account of repression, all sorts of things. So the dynamic unconscious is what's unique about psychoanalysis. Things are unconscious because of conflict, not because of intensity of desire, not because it's an awful event, a traumatic event, but because it produces conflict. Now, lifting repression, this is utterly crucial. It's sometimes very difficult to know our own repressed impulses and desires and thoughts. 
usually you have to infer them. It's like, I'm really angry at my father because I've smashed two of his favorite cups in the last week and I forgot to meet him for dinner. Okay, that is so weird. I never smash things and I never forget appointments and I've done three things crucially bad to my dad this week. I must be angry at him, okay? That's how you come to know that you've got unconscious anger. It's weird. It's like you're a behaviorist about yourself, but that's the way it is. And that's not lifting repression. That's inferring that there is an unconscious something within you. What Freud says is we seek to enrich the neurotic from his own internal source by putting at the disposal of his ego those energies that he's been squandering on this constant counter, you know, uh, counter pressure of repression. And so he's unfortunately confined to his own unconscious these things that his ego is having to squander energy on in maintaining the repressions. So if you gave up repressing, think of all the energy you'd have. You'd have the energy of the drives that are currently being repressed, and you'd have the energy of everything that's been trying to hold them back. But would you become a monster? Well, you might be. You know, It depends on the nature of the desire. If you've got a desire to eat a lot of people, best that you stay repressed, I would say. Okay. <laughs> Repression is kind of useful in those contexts. Um, but Repression must entail something becoming conscious. Like, if you're the world's famous psychoanalyst and you say to me, Doris, you've got unconscious anger against your father, and I go, I believe you, right? That is a separate conscious registration of a fact. That is not me coming to be able to allow that little mimic trace to be processed enough that I finally am able to become aware of it and put my own words to it. That's what lifting repression is. And that's why you've got to be really patient as a therapist. You might go, I know, I've worked out what's going on for this person. Quite politely, zip your lips, stop up. <laughs> They've got to come to that awareness in their own time, and you can do everything to help them become aware of that. But you don't just go, do you realize, you know, I've just worked out what it is about you. Great. They'll, they might never come back to therapy. <laughs> you know, They'll possibly think you're nuts. They're certainly going to defend against the awareness because if it's painful to them, you're going to become painful to them by raising this to their, their consciousness. So Freud says to have heard something and to have experienced something are in their psychological nature two quite different things, even though the content of both is the same. So I can say, yes, I've got unconscious anger towards my father because an expert has told me that's a fact. Uh, but coming to experience that for myself is quite a different thing. And psychoanalysis wants the experience. That's what's called working through. The experience of something that was unconscious becoming conscious. So we have to see our desires and wishes for what they are now, not as they were when we first had to repress them. So when I was a child, to go against my mother was very dangerous for me. She would have starved me, abandoned me, and put me on the doorstep for the predators, okay? Now, she'd be hard-pressed to try, you know, and I wouldn't die even if she did, because, you know, I've got money in my pocket and etc. In other words, the fears I had then are childish fears, and I have to recognize that I was socialized into viewing things a certain way in a certain context, and that context no longer pertains. That was then, this is now. And when he says... Um, Hysterics are troubled by reminiscences. What he means is they don't realize that was then, this is now. Okay, It's like the paint never dries on those old fears. Okay. 
Okay, so what have I been going on about today? Think you've got to take definitions seriously. You can waste a lot of money doing experiments that you think are refuting Freud and they haven't got much to do with Freudian theory. Alternatively, I might joyously claim Gabrielli's research as evidence for Freudian theories of dynamic repression, but he's actually exploring suppression. So much as I'd like to claim it, I can't. It's a shame. There you go. The other thing is clinical evidence has to be taken seriously as empirical evidence in its own right. Just the fact that you've got a trained observer working with a single subject, that's sometimes the way it's got to be with clinical phenomena. Um, what you've got to watch, though, is when people retrospectively invoke repression, saying, this person got to be this way because they must have been repressed. Um, some more evidence of repression than that would be good, thank you very much. You know, you can't just hypothesize after the fact. So you want to be able to test the causal story of what causes what, and other evidence is very helpful. That was the fifth lecture in the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.